0: You've just been given $10 billion. Wait, no, that's wrong. That was deceiving. I said that wrong. Let me start over. You've just been entrusted with $10 billion. It's still awesome. Sorry to get your hopes up. And you've been instructed to give it away to the life-saving initiatives of your choice. And you'll do this in the form of 1,000 different $10 million grants. With so many grants to oversee, it would probably make sense to establish some minimum guidelines for what qualifies a project to be considered for a $10 million grant. And as these are supposed to be life-saving grants, the first question you might be inclined to address is this. How many lives must a project promise to save before it's eligible for a $10 million grant? Welcome to the Impactivism podcast, where we explore how each of us as individuals can get better at doing good. I'm your host, Logan Sullivan, and this is episode number 14. This question is just a more abstract way of asking how much money you feel a life is worth. So if you don't have an answer to how much money a life is worth, then given your situation as the holder of these grants, this would be a reasonable question to ask. You know, what is the minimum number of lives an initiative must save to warrant a $10 million grant? In a study involving a hypothetical grant funding agency, like the one that you were entrusted with running, respondents were asked a version of this same question without stating how many lives were at risk. And then they were asked a few more times while varying that number. And as the number of at-risk people increased, two-thirds of the respondents also increased the threshold of lives saved that would warrant this $10,000 grant. So when told that 15,000 people were at risk, respondents set 9,000 as the minimum, which implicitly values each life saved at about $1,100. But when the at-risk population increased to 290,000 people, Respondents then, for some reason, drastically altered the value of a saved life down from $1,100 to $100 by suggesting that a $10 million grant was only warranted if it saved at least 100,000 people in this situation. And that same study explored how willing people would be to send money to a life-saving program in a Rwandan refugee camp that would save 4,500 lives. But really quickly, keep in mind throughout this episode and all other impactivism episodes, that value and willingness to pay is just really easily exemplified through dollar amounts. But when we're talking about these concepts... It also applies, or even more so than dollars, it applies to all of our resources that we represent as humans, our benevolent resources. You know, this includes the time that we're willing to spend or give to a cause, our mental capacity we're willing to invest in this particular topic, our energy in all forms that we're willing to give. Anyway, I just had to mention that really quickly, though I hope that was already apparent from other episodes, but just to clarify... So, back to the study, it found that as the size of these refugee camps increased, people were less willing to contribute to saving those same, those original 4,500 people. And so, what this suggests in another way, we could say that if the US or your home country went to war and you were forced to flee across a border, and seek refuge and safety in a displaced person's community of some type, then the value of your life, according to the, of course, flawed perceptions of popular opinion around the world among humanity, you know, those not aware of how they're thinking in this particular case, they would would suggest that the value of your life decreases with every additional person moving into your community. And it would then increase every time somebody left your community for another one. But really, whether there are 1,000 or 100,000 people who happen to be living nearby or in close proximity or an area that is referred to by the same name, I wouldn't be wrong to say that you and your family and your friends would still be living and breathing just the same, still feeling the same pain and pleasure, you know, still possessing the exact same and inherent right as a human being not to suffer and to live well, would I? So this is a weird thing to say, but yes, Joseph Stalin was right. Well, allegedly Joseph Stalin. He was accredited with this quote, He was uh, said to have first passed this on to the US ambassador to the Soviet Union during World War II. He said, The death of one man is a tragedy. The death of millions is a statistic. And trying to think about this as simply as possible, that really makes a lot of sense. A tragedy is usually what we can see and what we can really individually comprehend, and its severity tends to swell within our own perceptions relative to how much we can grasp. And if we don't have this story and all of its details, then as far as we're concerned from our vantage point, a tragedy that might be a tragedy to others is not a tragedy to us. And when one person dies, stories can really easily be grasped and told and passed on. And our minds have the capacity to comprehend all of their unique details uh, and this one story can be processed uh, emotionally. We can feel it and and relate in a way. But the stories of millions, you know, that's incomprehensible even if we tried as there's just not enough time of day, let alone emotional strength that we can possibly find to process so much sorrow or to even try to understand it. And then I think in the end, trying to do so would just be really self-defeating there's like this, this bottomless pit of statistics in the world that we could itemize into stacks of individual tragedy, but what good would that do? I mean, I might argue that it would it does harm. You know, if we really want to do good and to minimize these tragedies, then the goal is not to empathize. The goal is rather to find our rational compassion for this issue that we can then act upon with that rationality and in the process, maximize our likelihood of impacting good. But if we can take action to alleviate suffering, wouldn't it be best if we could do this without feeling that pain? Empathy in this sense, I don't really think is a good thing. I mean, empathy means that you are feeling the pain that somebody else is feeling. But if empathy, you know, is it necessary if it was necessary to catalyze somebody's action? You know, if we're not going to take action until we can actually feel what somebody else is feeling instead of trying to have compassion for them anyway, then there may be value to empathy. But I don't think that has to be the case if we're thinking, right? But I, it's again, it's that compassion of caring, even if we can't feel their pain. I think that's what matters most and what we, hopefully, that's thats what we aspire to do if we want to do as much good as we can. And our minds, I think, can really function at their full capacity and we can act at our full capacity regardless of how much compassion we possess. But when we increase our empathy, right, there's a certain point at which we begin to feel so much pain of others that we limit ourselves and we it's almost self-defeating and it becomes destructive i think at some point so if i close my eyes i can very easily see a face right and on this face i can see emotion i can i can understand the pain that it's displaying or maybe the happiness the joy uh, the caring the love whatever i can see in somebody's eyes and and in their smile or or the, the the tilt of their head, and I can feel that, right? But then if I close my eyes and I try to visualize 10 faces in one frame in my mind, I, I suppose I can do that still, but at that point, I can no longer see their eyes so well. I can, I can feel their presence a little bit less, and that empathy with what they might be feeling or my mirroring their emotion, that fades away. And then with 100, I close my eyes. I can't really see their faces at all anymore, but I certainly can imagine a crowd of anonymous bodies huddling together that might number 100. But then we go up to 1,000, and I have to zoom so far out that these bodies just become dots, maybe in a field. And from that point, it's really hard to find compassion for a bunch of dots, right? And then beyond that point, when you close your eyes and you know, even the smallest dots start blending together into this blob of unknowable size, right? It's still within our frame, but we don't know how many dots made up that blob. 3,000, 10,000, a million, a billion, you know? From that point, they're almost all the same. And the many, many humans, the many tragedies, they then become a statistic. So if we're depending on empathy... on on feeling someone's pain in a somewhat literal sense to push us to act. I guess there's no mystery why a single tragedy would spark so much more empathy and thus more action than statistics would. But maybe there's an important distinction to be made right there between empathy and compassion. Now, I can't possibly empathize again with 10,000 people all at once but I can absolutely have compassion for 10,000 people at once. And if I hold that compassion to a certain standard of rationality by deliberately deciding that it's worthwhile to expend the mental effort and energy to do so, then I'm forced to, I guess, be reminded that impacting 10,000 lives ought to be precisely 10,000 times as valuable as impacting one life. And our rational compassion would draw this distinction in order to best seek the most efficient and effective actions. It would not seek that in order to feel the most pain, right? But empathy and compassion will be its own episode before too long, so I'll leave it there and not expand much further. So imagine you walk into your bedroom for the night and see 10 pages of text lying on your left side nightstand and a stack of 10,000 pages on the right. That 10,000 pages is topped with one neat summary page to accompany it. And each of these stacks is a story. The 10 page story, it's readable, consumable, comprehensible. And the magnitude, the depth that we're used to finding in a short story is, is that 10 pages. And in those few thousand words, not few thousand pages, but few thousand words, there's room for so much beauty and character development and build up and climax and resolution to the story, right? And you could probably read it all, you know, right now before you fall asleep, take it all in and understand it but those 10,000 pages i mean i don't know about you but i have far too many books on my list growing every day that i know for the rest of my life i will never chop away at cuz that list will forever grow no matter how much i read it will get longer now i have too many books on that list to ever really start reading something that's longer than 500 400 500 pages you know so so this is I, I don't know, just for me, way too much. It's intimidating at the best and I think probably just unachievable at the worst to even <laughs> get through that. If I tried, just so many other books would come up and I wouldn't be able to do that. You know, for that same 10,000 pages I can read, I don't know how many other books that are already on my list. So <laughs> side side note there, but I think a, as much as I can imagine, you know, how much depth and complexity and intensity and, and beauty and and poeticism, is inside those 10 pages or 10,000 pages. Even if I did actually make it all the way through and and read the whole story, I don't know if I have the capacity to understand such a complex story that would require 10,000 pages to be told. You know, there's a lot there to remember and keep up with. And I don't know if I have that. So I can read, you know, that one page summary at the beginning and from that, hopefully get the most basic fundamental gist of what this might be about. But if every page, you know, of that story is one, you know, an individual or one story all coming together as one, then how do you fit 10,000 of these individuals or 10,000 of these tragedies? Hopefully it's not a 10,000 page book of tragedies but, or triumphs, whatever it might be. How do you fit 10,000 into one page? Well, you can't, so you use numbers with extra zeros, and those extra zeros just don't tend to make much of a difference after a certain point. And To highlight how numbed we are by those extra zeros, consider this example. So one study asked three groups of people of similar wealth, similar demographics, what they would donate to save 2,000 birds, to save 20,000 birds, and to save 200,000 birds from the aftermath of an oil spill. And sadly, the first group was willing to pay $80 to save 2,000 birds. The second group was willing to pay $78 in total to save 20,000 birds. That's $2 less for 10 times as many birds. And the third group was willing to pay $88 to save 200 thousand birds. And I did mention this study in another episode, uh, episode six, I think, uh, uh, talking about moral licensing. So definitely check out uh, that episode if you get a chance. I think it aligns well with the content of this episode. So back to the experiments. A, A similar experiment showed that residents of Toronto were willing to pay very little more in order to clean up all polluted lakes in all of Ontario than just the polluted lakes in a particular region of Ontario. And to elaborate, there are 250,000 lakes spread across Ontario, a large portion of the country of Canada, one of the largest land masses, uh, one of the largest uh, countries by square miles, square kilometers in the world. Though I, I don't have the exact number within that smaller region of Ontario cited in the study, but it was a very small fraction. And another experiment showed that residents of four western U.S. states would pay a certain amount to protect one single wilderness area. Then, they would pay only 28% more to protect all 57 wilderness areas in those states. So they would pay just over a quarter more to protect 57 times as much. So, as you might have guessed by by this point, uh, as per the title of the episode, these phenomena, they encompass a cognitive bias of ours, a mental imperfection, referred to as the scope insensitivity bias, or scope neglect. And this bias often leaves us acting in such a way that suggests 100 deaths or lives saved is less than 100 times as significant as one. Individual, relatable humans become masses, and masses become abstract, unrelatable statistics. When considering saving human lives, Our minds follow a similar psychological function. They experience the same cognitive limitations as they do when processing things like loudness, processing brightness and heaviness, as well as trying to comprehend wealth. So when processing each of these perceptions, we experience a diminishing sensitivity to changes as magnitudes increase. So this is to say when we think about wealthy people, right? a billionaire doesn't really seem a thousand times richer than a millionaire. They just seem extra rich, right? And that seems like good enough in our mind. And the difference between holding 45 pounds of weight and 50 pounds, it does not quite feel like the same difference as holding five pounds and 10. So in a similar way, As the numbers of lives lost, or lives saved, as it increases, the significance of each additional life atop this large number uh, decreases. We're just not able to process it in the same way, you know, that this small, you know, I I guess you could say this way, I guess, guess (laughs) a small increase in volume and quiet music while sitting in our living room, you know, this really stands out, but... I guess that same amount of increase during the middle of a concert, we probably have no idea that it happened. So we're clearly insensitive to um, the scope of animal lives, as shown by the bird example. And I have to mention this, in the way that you experience a similar reaction to hearing about Cecil the lion, you know, the, the one single lion, as the 60 billion... 60 60 billion, 60 billion farmed animals that are slaughtered each year. Though there's, you know, th- that's a result of a lot more cognitive biases than scope insensitivity, but those are maybe for another time. And we're, of course, clearly insensitive to environmental harm as well, as, you know, shown by the lake example and some others. But you'd think that if there's any way that we can counter this bias, it would be the consideration of human lives. That's us. Isn't that, there's nothing more relatable than us, I hope. Yet we've seen that that's definitely not the case. And so just one more example related to humans. Another study published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology analyzed how much people are willing to pay into public services in order to prevent deaths. When the risk of death related to chlorinated drinking water was set at four deaths per million people per year. This population was willing to pay each $3.78 per year to minimize that risk or eliminate it. And when the risk increased to 2,400 deaths per million people per year, that's 600 times as many deaths over time, they were willing to pay $15.23 to eliminate this risk. So that's about four times as much when the risk was 600 times as large. And when this experiment was tweaked, they found that when the factor was brought down from 600 times as many deaths to just 10 times as many deaths, there was no willingness to pay anything different. Meaning that the, that, that extra zero meant absolutely nothing. And simply because of the framing, you know, and our lack of critical thought here, our lack of awareness of scope and sensitivity, we valued saving one life as exactly as valuable as saving 10 lives. And all these studies may indicate another phenomenon that seems to suggest we have, you know, this finite amount of resources or energy to expend altruistically, And as we don't have unlimited time, unlimited energy and resources, you know, to give to doing good or to dedicate to uh, benevolent actions and thoughts and, and thinking things through and becoming better at doing good, sometimes our minds are less interested in purchasing with their time and energy and resources and purchasing impact, but rather more interested in purchasing a feeling. You know, that sort of warm glow you get when you establish that you've done your part for today or, you know, having successfully lived up to your standard of ethics for this period of time. And this is, it's like the high of the benefactor. And again, this idea is pretty entwined with moral licensing. So that's again in episode six, if you haven't listened. But unfortunately, this warm glow or, you know, this uh, the benefactor's high, it seems to be inherently scope insensitive itself. And I'm not suggesting that this is unnatural to feel this this way at all not at all I mean maybe maybe I'm making this podcast because this is entirely far too natural and because of this it takes a very deliberate effort deliberate energy and thoughtfulness to get better at something that we're clearly not very good at naturally I guess maybe even this podcast is you know it's highlighted to uh, dedicated to highlighting the consequences of not getting better at these things we're not so good at when it comes to doing good. Because the difference of a world, I guess, without so many of these biases leading us to to think and to act irrationally and a world with them that we have now, you know, this difference, it's a difference between a, a dysfunctional world where we have the infinite potential to create well-being, but where suffering persists, and one where we live up to this potential through thinking through it and overcoming our limitations. But I guess, I guess a lot of this is just seems to reaffirm you know, how much we value the act of doing good as an end in itself, instead of as a means toward the end of impacting good. Again, in the end, when, when considering the rationality of our ethical choices and actions, just try to keep scope in mind, right? Just being aware of this bias, it enables us to overcome it and no longer be a victim to it. And when you see somebody else falling victim, you know, throw it out there or point them to this episode. And just be sure to avoid, I guess, designating diminishing value to additional good. Make sure to act in accordance with the belief and that I hope that you possess at this point, if you're still listening to this episode and to the podcast, the belief that you know your best friend is the exact same person with the exact same right to life, the same well-being and happiness when they happen to be standing alone in a field, or if they happen to be standing in that field with 10,000 other people. It does not change who your best friend is. And also act in alignment with the idea that your 10 closest friends' lives collectively, Are 10 times as important as one of their lives, right? And then, as long as we know that, you know, about our friends and our loved ones, shouldn't we be able to apply that same logic to every human and every non human animal out there? So, that wraps it up. Thank you so much for getting through this episode. Uh, if you do enjoy what you're hearing, please consider subscribing on iTunes if you can leave a review. It takes quite literally two, two, two seconds up to two minutes, depending on if you want to write anything or just throw some stars. Uh, that goes a long way, especially at the beginning of the podcast, like this point, to help uh, put the word out there. And I guess that's, that's the whole purpose of this. Um, so also share with people you think might appreciate it or could who could benefit from it uh, so also the music a big big thank you to uh, musicians hana and cello joe for giving me the rights to their music for this episode and many others so check them out in the show notes at logansullivan.com. you can find all of their links uh, to much more music so that's all for now and i will be back with much more on monday